Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37. I would guess most of you have already heard the story before, so if you haven't got your Bibles, I wouldn't need to worry too much. But here it goes. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. A teacher of the law came up and tried to trap Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to receive eternal life? And Jesus answered him, what do the scriptures say? How do you interpret them? And the man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. You are right, Jesus said. Do this and you will live. But the teacher of the law wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbour? And Jesus answered, there was once a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when robbers attacked him and stripped him and beat him leaving him half dead. And it so happened that a priest was going by. But when he saw the man, he walked on by on the other side. And in the same way, a Levite also came along and went over and looked at the man and then walked by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was travelling that way, came upon the man, and when he saw him, his heart was filled with pity. He went over to him, poured in oil and wine on his wounds, and bandaged them. And then he put the man on his own animal and took him to an inn. where he took care of him. And the next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Take care of him, he told the innkeeper, and when I come back, I will pay you whatever you spend on him. And Jesus concluded, in your opinion... Which one of these three acted like a neighbour towards the man attacked by robbers? And the teacher of the law answered, The one who was kind to him. And Jesus replied, You go and do the same. Amen. The Good Samaritan story is one of the best known of all Jesus' parables. Surprising numbers of non-Christians know it, even if they don't know who said it. Surprisingly, it only appears once in our Gospels, 
Most of the other good stories appear a couple of times. And it's here in Luke chapter 10. Luke appears to have collected most of his information from other people. And the most likely source for this story then would be Peter, who he met on his travels with Paul. However, we cannot completely discount the possibility that he first heard this parable directly from the lips of Jesus. A teacher of the law was a role that had been developed following the exile. As the belief grew up that the exile was caused by the people being ignorant of the law, the Torah. And the answer seemed obvious. If the people were taught the law, then disobeying the law would cease. Who would knowingly choose to disobey the law? What could possibly go wrong? And that obedience then would usher in the Messiah, who would come and restore all things. Over time, the Pharisees, who were mostly teachers of the law, and what an austere bunch they are as well. (laughs) They came to believe that if the law was fulfilled to the letter, then Messiah would instantly appear. Presumably to offer his congratulations. Unfortunately for them, the law was sufficiently complex that increasingly bitter rows would break out about how various laws were to be interpreted. There were two preeminent teachers in Jesus' day And both of them had significant groups of followers. Hillel had been born in Babylon in 110 BC. He had already been president of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem for nearly 30 years when Jesus was born. You will recognise the name of one of his followers. It was Gamaliel. Remember him? Paul's theology teacher. Who also happened to be his grandson. Now like keeping it in the family. When Hillel died around 9 AD, at the remarkably old age of 119, Just think of that on the average scale of lifespans. If you get to 119 today, you're doing well. He was succeeded by his son, Shimon ben Hillel, as president. But Shimon, who must have been in his 80s, didn't survive the year. Ah. And as soon as 
and was soon succeeded by the other preeminent teacher of the time, a man called Shammai. Shammai was in turn succeeded by Gamaliel, who became president in 30 AD. So Gamaliel was president of the Sanhedrin when he made the judgment mentioned in Acts chapter 5 that the Sanhedrin should be cautious about acting against the Christians. Almost all of the theological arguments mentioned in the Gospels are attempts by either the house of Shammai or the house of Hillel, as they were known, to try to drag Jesus onto their side of the argument and against the others. And the house of Shammai was more legalistic than was the house of Hillel, but each side condemned the other for not being true to Torah. It may be helpful to describe Hillel as a liberal voice when within Judaism and Shammai as a conservative one. However, we must be careful of imposing the modern political attitudes associated with those words onto their dispute. Jesus clearly refused to be drawn into either camp, which was the main reason that they conspired together to have him crucified. We are unable to determine which side of the argument this particular teacher belonged to. And maybe he didn't want to declare himself until he had worked out what Jesus' position was. So, what must I do to receive eternal life? Most of us would consider a question like that to be a gift, wouldn't we really? He asked the teacher, to which Jesus asks a counter question, because the Jews are good at answering questions with questions. What do the scriptures say, he says? And crucially, how do you interpret them? Jesus too needed to know what the teacher was driving at. And so the teacher recites Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. I'm having a little pause because the person up there hasn't caught up yet. That's it. Um, And then they add in part of Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. Although it isn't at all clear, he was likely to be reciting the Greek translation that had been published in Alexandria in Egypt in the 2nd century BC. At Alexandria, the translation had been achieved by 70 Hebrew scholars. So the translation was, and still is, referred to as the Septuagint. The teacher 
made no attempt to at interpretation and clearly believed that the meaning of the passages was self-evident. Modern Christians frequently read the Bible believing that they both are not and don't need to interpret it. This is in spite of the fact that we keep needing to produce a new translation of the Bible in English every few years or so. The original written language of the New Testament was Greek. But a substantial part of that must have been translating conversations initially spoken in Aramaic. So even the original Greek was in fact, at least in part, translation. Readers of the Bible are always interpreting what they read as they read it, whether they realise it or not. The thing that scholarship is constantly revealing to us is that the text frequently isn't saying quite what the casual reader thought it was. And so much of how we interpret a given text hinges on how much we know of the background of the story because a text without a context is a pretext. So, Jesus takes him at his word and simply says, okay, do that. Do you know, there's nothing that annoys a teacher more than someone who doesn't rise to his bait. Jesus had effectively declined to discuss the theological complexity which the teacher enjoyed so much. So out of his frustration, he asked Jesus for an interpretation. Who is my neighbour? Let's keep this conversation going. The text tells us that he was attempting to justify his position. And he was evidently expecting an academic discussion about which categories of people qualified to be called a neighbour. So Jesus launches into his story. Now before we launch into the story, we need to understand a few things. Jerusalem. It stands on a mountaintop, 2,474 feet above sea level. Hold that figure in your head, just for a moment. That is about the height of Great Wernside, one of the three peaks in the Yorkshire Dales. In complete contrast, Jericho stands on the Jordan floodplain some 846 feet below sea level. Think about that. It's a site it had occupied on and off since just after the Ice Age. 
11,000 years ago. Including once or twice when the walls fell down. So the 23 mile road between Jerusalem and Jericho had to drop some 3,200 feet. And that gives an average gradient of 1 in 37. That's stiff. All those of you who like walking, you'll know what a 1 in 37 gradient is like. It's going on for 23 miles, it's a long way. <laughs> it really is. As you can be sure that no road can stick to an average, then much of the route must have been far, far steeper. Even the modern motorway at Amman in Jordan, or to Amman in Jordan, which passes quite close to Jericho, contains what for a motorway can only be described as a few hairpin bends. You can check that out on Google Earth if you really have the mind to. So in the first century, this road would have been very steep and very rough in places. And the descriptions of Jerusalem as up and Jericho as down were not just spiritual descriptions. There wouldn't have been a more inhospitable route out of Jerusalem in any direction. And they would all have been downhill. This same topography would have made the road a magnet for thieves. So the story that Jesus tells has a very believable backdrop. Both the priest and the Levite would have been able to, would have seen as the cream, they would have been seen as the cream of Jewish society. Any Jew who could show a direct lineage to Levi, the son of Jacob, was entitled to the role of Levite. And any Levite who could also show a direct lineage to Aaron, the brother of Moses, was entitled to the role of priest and could officiate at the temple. And this is one of the reasons why genealogies are so common within our Bibles, especially in the Old Testament. The Levites were the assistants in the temples. They would form musical orchestras and choirs for the worship. They formed the corps of temple guards for crowd control. And they would be in charge of money changing and the inspecting of animals and the birds for the sacrifices, the ones that Jesus took such exception to. And under the law, the priests and the Levites did not receive lands. Instead, they were intended to live off the tithes 
that the rest of Israel brought to the temple. By the time of Jesus, there were so many of them that each of them only needed to spend around four weeks a year on duty at the temple. And this usually involved two, two-week stints at Jerusalem each year at roughly six monthly intervals. In addition, they would need to attend the major celebrations such as Passover, Pentecost and Yom Kippur, the Jewish New Year. There was, therefore, a lot of going to and fro between Jerusalem and the surrounding towns where the priests and the Levites often lived. And they tended to keep small holdings for themselves and assisted in the administrations of the synagogues. And therefore, they became honoured parts of the establishment. Any Jew you meet with the surname Cohen or Cowan is likely to be descended from that priestly establishment. See, they're still around, just waiting for the temple to reappear. The sense of honour and prestige the priest and Levite received from their roles in the temple meant that they became wary of anything that would deprive them of their two weeks in the spotlight. You see where this is going, can't you? One of the things that could easily deprive them of their spotlight moment was if they came in contact with a dead carcass. They would then find that the purification ritual, which would itself take, guess, two weeks, would deprive them of their two weeks in the spotlight. Hence, when faced with a half-dead man, who might be completely dead for all they knew, they would prefer to walk on by on the other side, rather than risk losing their status by touching a dead body. Especially if they were heading towards Jerusalem. So then Jesus inserts his incendiary bomb. A Samaritan came that way. Now I've said some of this before. So if you've heard it before you can fall asleep for a few minutes. The Samaritans were descendants of the Israelites who had avoided exile to either Assyria or Babylon in the 8th and 6th centuries BC. They had not had the epiphany moment about law-keeping that the exiles had had in Babylon. And the two communities had grown up with a good deal of mutual suspicion, hostility and theological conflict resembling that of the Catholics and Protestants after the Reformation. 
Each believed that they were right. Don't we always? And the others were misguided. But they were equally devout followers of Yahweh. In fact, the Samaritans had erected a temple on Mount Gerizim. Soon after Nebuchadnezzar had demolished the one in Jerusalem. Somebody had thought to himself, we can't live without a temple, can we? And although when Ezra found out about it some 70 years later, he concluded it had been built in the wrong place and was therefore unlawful. This view was held by the Jews against the Samaritans right up until 70 AD, when the Romans under Titus destroyed the second temple at Jerusalem for what has been, so far, the last time. By this time, as both temples had been destroyed, the argument had become something of an academic one. You may recall that the lady at the well at Sychar seemed to be in some confusion as to why this issue was so contentious. Some years ago, family now, my wife and I were taking her son, Simon, that's the one with the beard, and his then girlfriend, Kirsty, to see her parents in Londonderry, in Northern Ireland. This is the bit of my family that now lives in Northern Ireland. Her family, being Catholic, lived in the Cregan Estate, just a little bit uphill from the Bogside. side. Both names have become household words during the Troubles. And incidentally, there were some further Troubles just this week in the Bogside which you may have noticed in the news. As we approached the city, Kirsty asked us where we were, and we said we were in Derry. Another little technicality coming up. I have to point out that the Catholic community contend that the name London does not belong in the city's name. Okay? So they don't use it. So it's just dairy as far as they're concerned. So Kirsty's response was, I have never ever been on this side of the city before. I wouldn't dare. We had him unwittingly brought her through the heart of the Protestant district of Derry. And fear had always kept her well away from there. When Jesus introduced the Samaritan as a hero of his story, it would have raised the partisan hackles of his audience in a similar way. He was not just saying the Samaritans are nice and neighbourly and require your respect. He was saying that this Samaritan at least was a better neighbour than they were. Prejudice. 
we rarely see ourselves as prejudiced. Have you noticed that? But we can readily see prejudice in others and we usually hate it. Many of the more enlightened of us will acknowledge that we have our biases in our thinking, although our biases are never as serious as the biases of other people. Billy Graham used to tell a story. First time I wrote that down, he he tells a story, but of course he's stopped telling stories now, hasn't he? Well, down here he stopped telling stories. (laughs) I may well, God's getting an earful. But here we go. Billy Graham used to tell a story of a man in the American Civil War who couldn't decide which side to support because he had friends amongst the Unionists with their blue uniforms on the left of the picture and also amongst the Confederates with their grey uniforms on the right of the picture. So he solved this dilemma by wearing his own uniform, consisting of a blue jacket and grey trousers. And he reasoned that his Confederate friends would see his grey trousers and would welcome him warmly. And his Unionist friends would see his blue jacket and equally welcome him warmly. Unfortunately, he found that once he was in the field, His unionist friend saw his grey trousers and began shooting at him. And to make matters worse, his confederate friends saw his blue jacket and equally started shooting at him. Impartiality, although very very desirable, is very difficult to maintain. As the BBC has found to its cost in recent years. The Jews had been biased against the Samaritans ever since the exile. They viewed them as very cavalier about the law and not very serious about holiness. The Samaritans had constantly been treated badly by the Jews, who they knew were somehow related to them. And they now wanted to segregate themselves from the Jews, as they were both had their own territory and tried as far as possible not to get in each other's way. When I grew up in Liverpool in the 1950s and 60s, much of the city had been segregated in a very similar way. Great Homer Street was the thoroughfare that marked the boundary line between the Protestants and the Catholics. To the west of Great Homer Street and down to the docks was the area occupied by the Catholic community of Vauxhall. Although the Liverpoolians don't say the age. This includes the famous Scotland Road, or Scotty Road, if you say it in Scouse. Here, almost every house would have a picture of a sacred heart attached by a drawing pin to the front door. And many would have a statue of the Virgin Mary or a crucifix 
in the window or the hallway. To the east and uphill from Great Homer Street was the Protestant quarter of Everton, the place where the football team gets its name from. Here, there was an abundance of Orange Lodge halls and a range of slogans scrawled of the wall, such as, No Popery Here! Or, King Billy Forever! Oh, what a lovely world it was. For those of you who are not well up on such things, and I don't blame you if you're not, this referred to the army of the Protestant William III, or William of Orange. He had fought the army of the Catholic King James II at the River Boyne in Ireland in 1690 and won. This is known as the Battle of the Boyne. And it's all part of that bit of our history known as the Glorious Revolution. And they celebrated this 328-year-old event on Thursday last week. Back in Liverpool, this segregation was only broken down when in the 1960s and 70s, many of the houses were demolished as part of the slum clearance drive of that time. And in 1971, the second Mersey Tunnel came up right on Scotland Road and was single-handedly responsible for the demolition of many Catholic homes. Many of the families ended up in overspill estates with evocative names like Kirby and Speak and Cantrell Farm. Cantrell Farm is a place you would never see a tractor, by the way. When a college in 1981, one of the exercises I was required to do was interview a selection of Muslim immigrants in Rochdale. And living among them were some white people who were not Muslims, and the uh, the questions I would have asked would have been entirely inappropriate. So as, so as not to waste the time, because I didn't know who was which, I devised a separate questionnaire for them. And when I asked them what it was like living amongst these Asian families, they would invariably answer, they didn't like them in their town. But they would go on to say, him living next door, he's a nice guy. And him living next door, that side, he's a nice guy. The people they got to know were found to be better than the, those they had ever imagined that they would be or could be. In Jesus' story, the Samaritan was breaking down the prejudice that was keeping two God-fearing communities apart. And he was saying that our neighbours are those on both sides of the barriers.
And if we don't cross those barriers, we will be no better than the priests and the Levites. But Jesus was also making a second point, and it is this. Caring for the poor and needy will always be better than any amount of religious observance. 